And that process goes here. Today we're going to uh, dive into two main topics. I actually want to talk about the FBI and the use of informants and just how uh, some facts regarding the use of informants and where it relates to how they tend to break the law quite often. And uh, again, these are a lot of things that potential jurors should be made aware of because when they parade them into the courtroom uh, against a defendant to testify against a defendant, uh, they try to clean them up, you know, make them presentable and try to pass them off as if what they're saying is accurate and what they're saying is truthful. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people aren't aware of to get them to that point, whereas they become an informant and a lot of agenda exists. And I want to just kind of talk about a little bit about that. And uh, one thing I just want to make clear, I was thinking about it, you know, everything I'm saying on this podcast, I'm not an attorney, so it's not legal advice. What I'm telling you is just uh, as a person, one-on-one, so just giving you advice from experiencing it firsthand, running a company, uh, supporting uh, attorneys and helping them out, dealing with families, dealing with it on a personal level. So everything I'm telling you is just my opinion and things that I would want somebody giving me a heads up about or informing me about so then I could take those steps uh, and, and just try to navigate these different areas with a little bit of substance before I just dove in. So that's really my only purpose. It's not to give any legal advice. Any legal advice. I'm not giving any legal advice at all. So I just want to make that clear for, I don't know, just to say it, I guess. So one one article that I was looking at when I when I was working on a case is I wanted to see you know just what happens with a lot of these informants you know and how the FBI deals with them and the more I dug into different kinds of research I was coming across article after article with similar headlines one one of the headlines this was from an article on back in 2016 and the headline of the article is FBI authorized informants to break the law 22,800 times in four years. That's ins- it, It's actually it's insane. Uh, it's, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of it. It's quite boring, you know, if you're just reading the article. So I'm just going to read a little just to give you a snapshot. But it's basically over a four-year period, the FBI authorized informants to break the law more than 22,800 times according to newly reviewed documents. Official records obtained by the Daily Dot under the Freedom of Information Act show that the Federal Bureau of Investigation gave informants permission at least 5,649 times in 2013 to engage in activity that would otherwise be considered a crime. In 2014, authorization was given 5,577 times. Uh, USA Today also, um, it appears they also gave different statistics uh, for different years as well. In 2011, uh, they were authorized to break the law 5,658 times. Uh, In 2012, 5,939 times, which it totaled up from the totals were t- from 2011 and 2014 were 22,823 crimes. Astounding. 
absolutely astounding. So, so as long, the moral of that for anybody who has brains is, you know, and is looking at this uh, just from an analytical standpoint, if you, if you don't even have a, an opinion on what somebody, you know, if somebody is an informant, they aren't an informant, but just to look at it and to say commonsensically that if you're allowed to break the law while you're being an informant, how, how does that equate? How does that equate to logic? If you're going to be an informant and you're going to work for uh, uh, an agency that is part of the government, it's a law enforcement agency, how are you allowed to break the law while you're doing that? Shouldn't that automatically result in you can no longer wo work with that department and you should also get prosecuted? Shouldn't they rip up your agreement, your uh, cooperating agreement, and then bring charges against you? You see, what that just tells me is in their mind, they're prioritizing. So they're saying if they're targeting somebody, they're going to let all these things go so they could just get the target. So they're going to let these informants do all these things, break all these laws, so they could just get their target. So in their mind, they're prioritizing individuals. And that kind of substantiates the whole theory how when they target somebody, they'll go by all means necessary to get that person. They'll overlook things, they'll allow informants to get away with things because the greater good in their mind is to get the person they're targeting. And again, if you're a juror and you know this is the background, how do you weigh that a little bit? How doesn't that factor into your decision of credibility? And, and that's what it boils down to. It's about credibility and, and agenda. And you know somebody's you know, doing all these things. They're, they're breaking the law. They're being treated as if they're untouchable because they are untouchable. They're allowed to do all these things. They're allowed to commit all these crimes and not have to worry about any consequences because they're feeding information to law enforcement. And it, it appears that USA Today, back then, this this was like from 2016, as I said earlier, they're the ones who actually, um, who came up with uh, this study. And there's a lot, if you go on like Google, and if you just, uh, some like key terms you could use, just do um, FBI, and you could do uh, uh, informants and crimes, you could just use those different keywords, and you'll see a lot of these studies, so I'm not going to go through every one, I just found that those statistics pretty fascinating I found the the idea that they're just allowed to do these things really disturbing and and another another report which was uh, from a site called gizmodo.com where it said the FBI severely underreported how many times it authorized informants to break the law so that stuck out to me because that's that's being, you know, deceitful. I mean, you're basically, from the the way the article reads, this is an article uh, dated 9-19-2017, and the title is FBI Severely Underreported How Many Times It Authorized Informants to Break the Law. This year, the FBI appears to have, for the first time, overlooked a reporting obligation established by the U.S. Attorney General's Office, and in doing so, the Bureau appears to have greatly lowballed the total number of times it authorized confidential informants to engage in criminal activity last year. And then it goes on and it gives, uh, it gives a bunch of statistics on the report that was released and the findings under the Freedom of Information Act that this gizmodo.com requested 
issued all the uh, different statistics and would, would tip them off, I guess, that something wasn't right. They have a side-by-side -side chart here. And on the side-by-side -side chart, they're showing the numbers. And 2011, this is how uh, it's saying that the FBI allowed, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where the FBI allowed informants to break the, uh, break, to break the law. So it gives you details of, of per year. And I mentioned some of these numbers earlier. In 2011, it was 5,658, 2012, 5,939, 2013, 5,649, 2014, 5,579 times, 2015, 5,271 times. Then in 2016, it drops to 381. And the article says if you selected, something's not right here. So basically the person reading it saying, well, wait a minute, for five years it was over 5,000, all of a sudden it drops to 300. It says if you, if you believe something's not right here, you're correct. It turns out the FBI failed to report an entire tier's worth of criminal activity, therefore significantly reducing the overall number of authorized crimes it reported. That's about a 93% drop. So I guess, you know, the, the, to, <laughs> you know, in order for them to make that change, uh, I'm assuming they felt there was something wrong with it. And uh, on an update, it's saying the FBI reached out to Gizmodo on Wednesday to confirm there's an error in the 2016 report. So I guess they, they would have updated those numbers. But in the initial report, there was a significant jump, and Gizmodo was kind of hinting that it was accidentally on purpose. You know, they, so it's just kind of scary in the sense that all these all these informants are allowed to break all of these laws, and their sins are wiped away clean if they're willing to give up information. And as I said earlier, whether I agree with it or not, I'm going to keep that aside. My opinion, I'm going to keep that on the side. You know, that's. You're either born that way where you feel you could go through life uh, committing crimes and not doing the right thing and then you know in your back of your head when the time comes you could always just uh, turn state's evidence, turn federal evidence, uh, inform on somebody. So you always kind of have that, that card to play and you know that's just born in you. That's the way you think. You're fine with ruining other people's lives for something you did yourself. You just don't want to take accountability. You know, if if <clears throat> rather than just say, hey, you know what, you know, this is what I did. It's time to, to pay the price for it and not look to just blame somebody else to save your own skin. They choose to blame that other person in hopes of receiving a benefit, whether it's financial benefits, whether it's time, you know, a lot of time off of their potential sentence, which is more than not. That's always what happens. And then... um you know, this kind of led me as I was, as I was diving into the different inform informants, just how unreliable jailhouse informants are. I mean, it, it was crazy some of the statistics. I went on to. I went on to the website, uh, the Innocence Project, and they had some really enlightening information. I mean, one of the um, 
One of the statistics was 159 number of exonerations, DNA and non-DNA, where jailhouse informants played a role. So that basically means 159 people were exonerated after DNA and non-DNA was introduced in some on an appeal or, or, or some kind of fight to, to prove that this poor person who was in jail, spending his life in jail, was innocent. And the reason why he was put in jail, one of the factors had to do with a jailhouse informant. So right off the bat, you know, that person was lying. You know, the jailhouse informant was lying. And as a result, this innocent individual was convicted and locked up. And then he spent, he or, or, or she spent years and years in jail, probably went for all kinds of money. If they were lucky enough, you know, to maybe get some uh, counsel without going for all kinds of money, but all kinds of heartache for their family, ruined them financially, emotionally, all because you have jailhouse informants who obviously lied to get a benefit, to have a reduced sentence, get out of jail free card, something, and they just lock up, lock people up, and they and they and they bring them in front of jurors, and jurors are believing these people. That's what's amazing me more than anything else. How does a jury just not use their their own intuition and and understand the person in front of them is a jailhouse informant? And there's some kind of huge benefit to them to be doing this. They're obviously going to get out of jail. They're going to get a break. They're going to get a reducing sentence. They're going to get something. You have to weigh that. You have to factor that in. I know the government tries to say that has nothing to do with credibility or their, or their ability to tell the truth. That's complete nonsense. That's complete smoke and mirrors. That's just a way of twisting the reality. That's just a way of creating, once again, that false narrative. <clears throat> got 80% people who believe jurors should be informed if jailhouse informants are receiving incentives in exchange for their testimony. So people on a whole believe that a juror should be aware of that. So 80% of the people polled for this believe that a jury juror should be aware of that, that they are getting incentives in exchange for their testimony. And jurors most of the time are not aware of that. They're not told that. You would think that would be important. If you're putting somebody on the stand and you want somebody to believe them, you would believe, you would feel it's, it's, it's vital to get all the facts on the table so they have a clear picture of what they're dealing with. So now the person's placed in front of them, you want to know, are they, being are they getting incentives? Are they getting benefits? Why are they here? Are they here truly just to tell the truth? You know, again, my, my personal opinion aside, is the person really looking to turn, turn over a new leaf? Are they really like looking to do some good in their eyes? Are they looking to try to clear their conscience? Is that the case? Or is it that they're getting all kinds of incentives, benefits, all kinds of breaks? Are they getting less time? All those things should be made aware. You cannot hide that from a jury. I, I, I don't understand it. And when you think about it, to hide it from a jury tells you that they're just trying to limit what the jury sees so they could have the prosecution and the case fit a certain uh, tale, a certain story that they're trying to tell. And then you're limiting the defense in trying to fight that and trying to strategize because now the defense has to figure out a way to overcome that without being able to discuss the truth. So you're almost forcing the defense to avoid the truth to fight the case. So we can't bring out the truth, but we have to still figure out how to fight the case and still prove that our client is innocent 
or our, our client doesn't know this informant or our client has never met this person, but you can't do that by attacking the credibility of the person. That's a big, big obstacle to get around and that has to change. And I, and I know there is there's different type of reforms going on and there's different type of, of uh, people trying to you know, change this, this policy. And I hope, I, I really hope it happens one day. But the way things are going, I don't know how long that's going to take. So I feel the only way it could happen is just educate people, educate potential jurors, let them know these facts, let them understand these things. So when they are on the panel, they have all this in back of their head. So it doesn't matter whether or not the prosecution brings it up, they'll know about it in back of their head. And they could, they could use their own judgment and their own knowledge and their own assessment when they're looking at each one of these individuals, each one of these informants, and trying to understand if they're being t- telling the truth, if they're being motivated to tell the truth by making up certain things, if they're trying to make pieces of a puzzle fit just to uh, benefit themselves. Some of the uh, reforms that are suggested to enable justice by this article from the Innocence um, uh, the Innocence Project that I do like. Uh, I like this recommendation, actually. They, they're saying that a requirement for judges to hold pretrial reliability hearings to assess whether a jailhouse witness's testimony is admissible. Judges must do this before an expert witness testimony is admitted to the jury. The jailhouse witness should have similar scrutiny. That, that, that makes sense. That makes all the sense in the world. You, you're going to put on an expert. you got to make sure they have the credentials and they have the ability to, to speak educatedly, uh, to, to speak educated, I should say, on the topic at hand, to speak in a intelligent manner that has facts about whatever they're an expert on. And yet a jailhouse informant, you could just roll them out, put them on the stand, and then let them tell their story. So that, that would actually be a good, a good a, uh, practice to have a reliability hearing for a jailhouse witness. And uh, honestly, for any witness for that matter, really try to pull apart if what they are saying is accurate or if there's holes in the story. Several states have already taken steps to regulate the use of jailhouse informants through statutes, court rules, and court decisions. In Connecticut, they enacted a law in 2019 that provides protections against unreliable jailhouse witness testimony. At the defendant's request, prosecutors must disclose within 45 days whether they intend to introduce jailhouse witness testimony, and if so, must disclose key information about the jailhouse witness and their testimony, including any benefits that were offered or may be offered in exchange for their testimony. The law also requires the court to conduct a pretrial hearing to determine whether any jailhouse witness's testimony is reliable and admissible in homicide and sexual assault cases. Additionally, the law implements the first in the nation statewide tracking system for information about jailhouse witnesses, including the substance and use of any jailhouse witness testimony, cooperation agreements, and jailhouse witnesses, jailhouse witnesses, and any benefits that will have, that have or will be provided offered to jailhouse witnesses. So th- that's a good law to have. The Connecticut enacted that, and I, I don't want to go through each one, but Florida has one, Illinois, Nebraska, 
Oklahoma. The best thing to do if you really want to pull it up in detail, just to get an idea, you could just the Google, uh, Google the title of the article, which is Reforms That Enable Justice, and it's from the, um, the Innocence Project. So uh, it's just fascinating, you know, when you dive into it and you really see what takes place with these so-called witnesses and these so-called informants and the money they receive in exchange for their testimony, where they'll get, and I'm not even exaggerating because we just dealt with it on, on a case, hundreds of thousands of dollars over a few year period. Hundreds of thousands of dollars just for, just for coming in testifying at trial, sitting with, uh, having a proffer session, which is basically where they sit with the government and tell them everything they supposedly know. And the government takes their notes and they, and they get expenses paid, mortgages paid, rent paid. If they, they don't have a job, they get set up with a job, but if they don't have a job in the interim, they'll get it. They, they get a paycheck, health insurance, Really, every kind of benefit you could think of, just solely, they can make a career. Technically, when you think about it, they can make a career out of being a professional informant. You know, just come up with stuff. Just make stuff up and, and become a professional informant. And that's the problem. So you understand what, what I'm trying to get at. <clears throat> and, I, and I said it several times. I'm, I'm not really going to voice my opinion on my personal feelings on an informant. Um... I think I've made it clear uh, throughout my other podcast just how I feel on the topic. But that aside, for, for, the, for the average person, for the ad, average citizen who's dealing with this, you should just weigh the fact that when these people are lying, that's a problem. If they're going to come in and be a legitimate witness, tell what you know. Do not make up lies. That's where this whole thing just goes to, 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 to meaningless when you start making up lies and you're getting caught in these lies and sometimes the jury just overlooks that. When you have a defense attorney ripping a, 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 a supposed witness apart and, and poking holes, that should count for something because in your mind as a jury, you, you should say to yourself, why would the government put this guy on? Why would they put somebody who, who you cannot trust as far as you could throw onto stand to testify on their behalf and he's obviously lying. You can't overlook that as a juror, in my opinion. You have to say, the government's putting it on. That means they have a really weak case. If you have a strong case, put on strong witnesses. Put on actual witnesses. I mean, that's the way I see it. It's a clear-cut way to analyze something. You know, when you see these a witness that really is unreliable and yet the government forces them on and gets them on no matter what and they ignore all of these wrongdoings that they committed while while testifying well I'm sorry while cooperating and 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 they continue to put them on they're caught in lies if you go through the 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 3500 material which is basically all the material the government gives you before trial before federal trial you go through all these the 3500 and so a lot of its notes a lot of it's notes that the uh, that the witnesses uh, statements from the witnesses that the uh, agents or whoever was present, the prosecutor, whoever was present during the proffer sessions, they would take notes and uh, dictate and write down everything that the witness had to say. And if you start going through them and you start comparing them 
And you see a lot of inconsistencies. And you see a lot of things that don't match up. Now, if we're seeing that, if the defense is reading that, obviously the prosecution is aware of it because they went through it. They took the notes. And what I don't understand is when they see that, why don't they confront the witness? Why don't they say, you're lying? Uh, on you know December 1st, for example, you said X, Y, and Z, and on December 15th, you said ABC. It does, and that's that's the problem I have. The problem I have is when they know that these guys are lying to them, or these gals are lying to them, and they're telling them information they just want to hear. And and you're trying to legitimately try a case, and you're trying to, you know, do your job as a prosecutor and do your job where you feel you know you're gonna you're gonna build a case and and you and you're gonna bring the case in front of a jur a panel of twelve jurors. Why not just make sure who you're bringing is a legitimate source and not lying and not, you know, an unethical purpose, a person with zero moral compass who will just do anything to save themselves. And they'll lie and they'll make up stories. And it's very obvious when you start comparing the notes that they're just making up stories. It's very obvious. The, the, the government, you know, Every people involved in this, they're intelligent people. So they know what's going on. They know when these witnesses are lying to them. And what I don't understand, why not just cut them loose? Why not just say this guy's a liar? He's not accurate. He told he, He's telling us something that isn't true. If we're going to build the case, let's build it the right way. Let's find witnesses that are saying true statements and true accounts. And they're not constantly changing their story. When you compare some of these notes... It's incredible. You just see the story change. You see it altered. You see it manipulated. And you see the witness just going on and on and making stuff up. And you would figure they would take his cooperation agreement and rip it up and throw it away. Another article that, if you get a chance to look up, it's an interesting read. And I'm just going to read a couple excerpts from it. It's from Crime and Justice, July 9th. 2018. The title is Prosecutors Are Using Jailhouse Snitches to Send Innocent People to Death Row. The problem is the desperation to get out and the willingness of the district attorney to use us. That's a quote from one of the jailhouse uh, snitches. And he's actually admitting the problem is the desperation for him to get out and how willing the district attorney is to use him. And just, I mean, uh, a few of the quotes that just kind of sum it up. Criminal snitching is an enormous problem for our justice system, in part because it's an enormous source of error. Of course it's a source of error because people are lying. I mean, and and this is, you don't get any more serious than death row. You're using snitches, and this is the article's term, jailhouse snitches, to send innocent people to death row. How sadistic is that? To save yourself, you're willing to have somebody killed. And that's acceptable. And that's being allowed without being totally vetted. If you're bringing in a jailhouse snitch and somebody's facing jail time, I honestly don't care if it's six months, I don't care if it's a day jail time. But if you're facing, if somebody's facing death row as a result, they should they should have an investigation done on that snitch that is more thorough and more exhausted than anything else. Somebody's life is on the line. That's a scary concept when you think about it. And there's another article that um, I found very interesting. 
It was written by an Alexandra Netapoff. And I apologize if I didn't pronounce your last name properly, but it's spelled N-A-T-A-P-O-F-F. It was written September 23rd, 2019. The name of the article, you should Google it, is Why Juries Need Expert Help Assessing Jailhouse Informants. Informants are highly motivated to lie, but jurors don't always have the information or skills to discern the truth. And this article goes on to basically talk about how jurors are uninformed and they're believing lying informants, which then leads to wrongful convictions. I mean, that sums it all up. They're not informed properly. They're believing these people. And what's the result? Somebody loses their freedom. All because the juror was left in the dark on the facts. On the facts about this this supposed witness, which it's not a witness, just an out-and-out liar. It's a liar who is looking to save themselves. I mean, a scary statistic in this report, which comes from Northwestern University School of Law, over 45% of innocent people on death row were convicted because of a lying criminal informant. And that's according to a 2004 report. How scary is that when you think about it? People were put on death row because of somebody lying. Look how look how strong a lie could be. Look how powerful it could be. And that's really the scary, the scary part of it all, because when you think about it, when you go through life and, and, and you deal with people and you interact with people, you probably always say to yourself, you know, regardless whether it's a business deal, whether it's uh, you know, hanging out with your friends, whatever it may be. As long as you know you're doing everything the right way, and as long as you know the parties involved um, are, are going to be honest about what the deal is and what you're doing, you have nothing to worry about. Because in your mind, you're saying, hey, listen, if they tell the truth, they want to they be a witness, they want to be an informant, that's fine. As long as they tell the truth, I have nothing to worry about. That That's completely wrong. It's one thing I learned throughout life and throughout running my organization and dealing with defendants, that's completely wrong. You got to get that out of your head. You have to start anticipating how people could twist the truth and how how the reality could be lied about and what lies they can make up about you and how something could be so clear cut to you in black and white because you know the truth of it, you know how it played out. But if you're dealing with a liar, they're going to get completely twisted. They're going to completely twist it and turn it and turn it upside down on its head and then you're actually going to put in a situation where it's very hard to explain the truth and the reality because the lie is so deep and you're so far in that you have to try to figure out, well, how, how do I battle this? How do I battle this guy out and out lying? None of what he is saying is true. So I have to come up with how I could prove it's, it's, it's not true. And that's very hard. Disproving a lie is very hard. Because a lot of these liars slash informants, they come across very convincing. And if you don't have competent defense counsel who could expose it and really dig deep and really go through their background and really dissect, as I said in the earlier episode, dissect the discovery and really go through it and, and find the loopholes and find where they were lying and investigate them and get an investigator to really find them so when you have them on the stand, you could rattle them. 
they'll really come across convincing. You know, they come across matter of fact. You have to realize they're prepped for that. They have prepping sessions. The government will sit with them and walk them through time and time again. The questions they're going to ask, the answers they're going to give. They have practice. As a defendant, you don't have any practice. You're brought in that courtroom. You're ready to go. Uh, the defense attorney can't have any practice uh, cross-examining the witness. They have to do it on the spot. They could prepare in the background. They could prepare their questions, but they can't physically run through it. They can't have a trial run. The prosecution and and the the uh, informant slash liar have trial runs. They get to practice it. They this way they perfect it. So when they're performing in front of the the um, the jury, it comes across really well. It comes across uh, very accurate. They come across calm. They've had a lot of time to practice. You know, and, and I'm not saying that all prosecutors, you know, they, they, they scheme and, and, and they uh, scam and they're, and, they're trying, and they're lying. That's not what I'm saying at all. Actually, what I'm saying is when you're an honest prosecutor, you should just evaluate these guys. Look at them. If you see these guys are lying and you're intelligent people, uh, everybody involved in the legal system is intelligent. You had to go through a lot of schooling. You had to go through a lot of training. I mean, you're an intelligent person. You're going to know that this guy's lying to you, this girl's lying to you. Get them out. Cut them loose. Get rid of them. Don't even try to go down that rabbit hole. They're obviously not telling the truth. They're trying to save themselves. Their intentions aren't honorable. They're not trying to do the right thing. They're just trying to save themselves. You should weigh that and disregard them. I just build your case based on the reality of it. If you have somebody guilty, you have somebody who committed a crime, you have the evidence, you know, go, go through with it. Put, put, put together the facts, put together everything together, you know, put together everything you need. But if you see one of the potential witnesses or, or informants is lying to you, get rid of them. And, you know, I, I see a big separation between a witness and an informant slash liar, because a witness actually uh, uh, viewed something, heard something, dealt with something one-on-one, -on -one, and they're just, they're giving their recount of it. They, they're giving their, their, their interpretation of the events. They're telling what they believe to be true. When you get these informants who are lying, they're not a witness. They're just making up something. They're trying to satisfy the government so they get the best possible outcome. They're trying to, they're trying to make sure that they get a favorable result a lot of the times they're waiting to be sentenced on a crime they committed. And a lot of times what happens is um, their sentencing hearing keeps getting put off until after the current trial that they're about to testify in is over. And to me, again, this is just me using common sense. That tells me they want to see how, how well they did a trial. And then that's going to determine how lenient the judge is going to sentence this informant. So, you know, you do a good job which they're going to want to do these liar slash informants, they're going to get a nice lenient sentence. They're going to look for time served. They're going to look for, you know, the minimum they could get for some horrific crimes. Some of them commit some horrific crimes. And, it, and I'm not talking about legitimate witnesses here. That's somebody who legitimately saw something. They want to take personal view out of the equation. Forget about that. If you're a legitimate witness, you're a legitimate witness. You get in front of the stand, you say the story. But when you're lying, that's that's the whole basis of what I'm trying to discuss today. It's the lying aspect of it. It's the untruthfulness. It, it's the deception that takes place behind the scenes. 
It's taking these people of poor character, terrible people, and trying to make them come across like they're honorable when they're not. They're not. A lot of them have committed crimes their whole life, and they'll keep committing crimes. They sign their, their cooperating cooperation agreement, and they continue to, to commit crimes. They're not changing their ways. They're not turning over a new leaf. They're just looking to keep doing what they're doing and not get in trouble for it, and they're being allowed to do it. And that's what's concerning. That's what's concerning. The second they do that, their cooperation agreement should be ripped up, and they should then have to deal with the exact same criminal justice system that everybody else has to deal with. It can't just be who they want to target. Whether it's a minority that's on their radar they want to target. Whether it's an Italian-American that's on their radar that they want to target. Whether it's somebody who owns a hedge fund company that's on their radar that they want to target. The bottom line is they're going to target somebody. They're going to pick them. They're going to select them. And they're going to go after them. And they're going to do whatever they can to make that case work even if there's nothing there. And if they don't have informants, they're going to, they're going to turn people into informants. Another study I'm going to give you to look up, because I don't want to bore you guys with all these studies I'm giving you, but it, just, it is important. I know it could get boring, and, but it's just important to read it and understand these things. Because honestly, if you do get picked for jury duty, or you are helping a defendant out, or you are working in the, in the, in the law, law field, or you are a family, a family member, or you are a defendant, it's important you know these things. And this, this is... Um, it's a long study. It's, it's uh, let me see. It's about twenty-five pages, but just look it up. You could just Google. It's called Jailhouse Snitch Testimony: A Policy Review, and it's by the Justice Project. And I'm I'm not going to go into it, but just what's on what's on the the front of it is captivating. Where it says prosecutors relied heavily on the testimony of a jailhouse snitch to convict Wilton Dedge of rape. Dedge spent 22 years in prison before he was released and exonerated of the crime. You can't say more than that. This, this poor guy spent 22 years of his life in jail. Not only did he spend his life in jail 22 years, which he can never get back. Uh, you know, There's no way of getting that back. On top of it, they label him a, a rapist which is one of the lowest things you could be labeled. So they label this guy a rapist. He's in jail, known as a rapist, and they rob him of 22 years, and then he gets exonerated because, obviously, the jailhouse snitch turned out to be a liar, which they often do. So, again, try, look that look that study up when you have time to kill. It's just something just good to have in your memory bank. If and when the day comes, you get selected for jury duty, you really should know these things. And even if you don't, it's just good to know when you have conversations or when you're reading newspaper articles and you're seeing, you know, different cases that are making big headlines. It's good to be aware of these things because when they put out these releases, they always make everything so matter of fact. You know, we have this informant, this witness. He's, uh, you know, he's going to be telling uh, all these facts. But meanwhile, the guy has zero reliability and zero credibility. But you're, you're pawning him off like uh, everything out of his, his uh, mouth is nothing but the truth. And guys like that, they could raise their hand all they want and they could put their hand on a Bible or they could swear on whatever God they believe in. Or what. When you're a liar, you're just a liar. None of that means anything. You're just going to lie. So that's all, that's all meaningless. I'm going to move on after this, uh, but I found this very, 
very interesting as well. This article is um, it's titled Federal Prisoners Use Snitching for Personal Gain. How Snitches Pay for Freedom. This was in USA Today. And it was published December 14th, 2012. And I just want to read this one little caption where it says, At least 48,895 federal convicts, one of every eight, had their prison sentences reduced in exchange for helping government investigators. So it's how snitches pay for freedom. So that answers everything we were talking about earlier right there. You know, it's it, it's informants trying to figure out a way how to cut their sentence. So what is the agenda? You have a big agenda and you have a big motivation to jam somebody up. So you could get somebody, uh, somebody comes in, they're on a high, high profile case, for example, let's say. You befriend them. You prey on their lack or the, the lack of ability to judge character. They really think you're trying to be a nice person, but yet you, in the back of your mind, you're setting them up. You're using them. You're using that person to, to benefit yourself to, for a personal game, and you don't care that you're going to lie on them. These guys don't care. you, you got to have no soul if that's how you think. If you could look in the mirror and know you're setting somebody up just to save yourself, I'm sorry, but you have no soul. I don't know how you were brought up, but that's that's just that's not what society should be made up of. Of. And that's why we have so many problems. That's why when you look on the news, you see all these horrible things that people do. And that's why there's a lot of people out there with no soul, no conscience, no no respect for humanity. You know, I was raised to, to respect one another, to help people, to respect your elders, to be, you know, to be a gentleman, you know, to, to, to really conduct yourself in a manner where it doesn't matter if you're dealing with the janitor or the president of the United States, you treat everybody with respect. You treat people the way you want to be treated. That's really what it's all about. And to, and to try to jam somebody up and look to have somebody go to jail or, or to get locked up for something they didn't do because you want to set them up, basically, just to help yourself out. You have no conscience. Zero. And that's, that's really what it boils down to. And there's a lot of articles on it. I mean, I just really wanted to dive into that, to that today because when I was doing the research for uh, my last case, it was endless, endless articles that just kept coming up. And I'll probably dive into informants another day because the, the topic is quite extensive. I mean, when you really dive into all the benefits these guys get, get and how they basically pay for their freedom, it's it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. You know why it's fascinating? It's fascinating because a juror doesn't see that. And a juror doesn't use their common sense to realize this guy's testimony is worthless. It's worthless. Shouldn't mean anything. And the fact that the government uses them should mean something. The, the fact that the government even calls them to the stand should count for something. Because in my mind, if I was a juror, I would say to myself... For you to call this person to testify and put them on, you're almost making it like I'm an idiot. You're making it like you have no respect for me because you're using this guy to convince me. And I would take that as a personal insult. If you're going to put somebody in front of me, okay, please put somebody who's who has credibility. Please put somebody who has a legitimate reason of why they're deciding to be a witness. Please put somebody who maybe is honestly trying to 
to turn over a new leaf and in their mind that's the way to do it and in their mind they want to clear their conscience but don't put somebody on who's going to out and out lie to me and treat me like I'm a moron and then look at me as the government and say oh believe believe this uh, man or woman believe, believe everything they say even though anybody would you know anybody with common sense and I keep using that term but I really believe common sense isn't as common anymore so I think you know people have to start taking a step back and looking into that and really, really understanding what is taking place in front of them. And you got to you gotta use your brain. And when you're in that room deliberating, you got to voice up. And if there's one person in there who has a little reasonable doubt based on these, on these um, potent, uh, supposed witnesses, which to me, they're just liars when they're not telling the truth and they're just making up stories. They're not a legitimate witness. They should have that discussion in the jury room. They should all sit down and say, all right, do we believe this guy? Look at all the lies he was caught in. If you lie to me once, are we going to believe him the second time, the third time, the fourth time? You know, it really should be. You, you, listen, if you're lying once, you're out. You're out. You're being brought into a, to a case, to a, whether it's a federal case, a state case. It's an important forum. You better come with somebody who has the ability to tell the truth, with somebody who is going to be honest. And who somebody's whose story does match up and isn't where you have to uh, grasp at straws to make it work. That's how I would look at it. One other topic I just wanted to touch on today before the end of the day was I just wanted to um, kind of set the tone on how, what the process is and in the unfortunate event if somebody is convicted of a crime, what, what stops they, what options they have. And I just wanted to briefly go over that just to put it in your head. So you have a, uh, you have a, a good understanding of, of where you go from there. And then you could go into more detail and talk to your, talk to your attorney about it. After conviction, the defendant's entitled to seek relief through several processes. Uh, the processes allow the defendant to overturn his con his or her conviction based on errors that occurred at the trial level. Uh, the defendant is entitled to make a motion for a judgment of acquittal pursuant to Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure, Rule 29. So I don't want to get into explaining the whole Rule 29. It's going to bore everybody, so you could just look that up, Rule 29. Uh, the website of uh, Cornell... Law Cornell is a great website for looking up different rules and different uh, regulations. So you look up Criminal Procedure Rule 29. A defendant can also seek new trial pursuant to Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure's 33 motions. Such motions must be made within 14 days from the verdict. So after the verdict, and you're looking to seek a new trial, you have to make those motions within 14 days of the verdict. So that's an important uh, date to keep in your mind if, unfortunately, you find yourself in that position or a family uh, member. Make sure you reach out to the attorney and make sure those motions are being filed within those 14 days. A defendant can also seek a new trial under Rule 33 motions based on newly discovered evidence. The new evidence must be material, so it has to, it has to, it has to be very important which is that its existence must show, must show a reasonable likelihood the result of the trial would be different. So whatever you discover that's, that's new evidence, in my interpretation, 
and which I believe is how it'll play out, it has to make an impact. It has to be something that really would have changed the whole outcome of the trial or could have changed the outcome of the trial. A motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence must be made within three years from the date of the verdict. So you have three years. So basically, the clock starts running on all these different motions for appeal the day the verdict comes out. So you're the defendant. Make sure you're on top of your attorney. You have another firm working with you, such as my organization. Make sure they're, they're talking to you about this. Make sure they send you a schedule. The be- what I would want, give me a calendar. I would tell my attorney, I want a calendar. Give me a calendar with all the different dates and what has to be done by each date. That's what you need. This way you don't forget anything. He doesn't forget anything or she doesn't forget anything. And you know that you're going to hold him or her accountable. You guys are going to be on the same page and you know what, what has to be done at what specific time. So nothing gets lost because, that you know, this is someone's life. Nothing, you can't afford for anything to be uh, missed based on a date. Then you have direct appeal. A defendant can file a notice of appeal after his sentencing. This is known as a direct appeal, which allows for relief based on any error and facts within the record. So anything that's in the record, uh, in the court system, for the trial, that is known to have, and you're looking for relief based on any errors or facts that were made within that record, That is the direct appeal. The appeal is decided by a circuit court. For New York, it's the second circuit for New York federal cases. So it would go up to the circuit court. And in New York, it's a second circuit on a federal case. And it's a panel of three judges that hears the appeal, which, in my opinion, that's a big advantage. You you have three different opinions uh, rather than just one person. So that, that helps in the sense that you got three people talking about it. It's not just one end-all, be-all, which obviously if you're in the appeal mode, uh, the, the, the trial judge that you had was only one judge making all the calls and unfortunately didn't go in your favor. So your odds are better with having three. A majority of the three judges, so two out of the three, is needed to, to win on appeal. Now, if the panel denies the appeal, the defendant can seek permission for an in banc review of a particular issue by the entire circuit court. So that gets circulated throughout the entire circuit court, and that's called an in banc review. So if you lose and you're denied, you have another option to seek permission, but you have to get permission, you got to get approved for an in banc review. And unfortunately, it's rarely granted. Uh, from what I understand, it's the odds of getting that are very slim. But if the, if you do get it, the court may undertake an inbox review on issues of importance or those that have created a split amongst the circuit judges. So they could, you know, they could look into it and they could review it, but the chances are slim. Also, a defendant can request that the U.S. Supreme Court review an issue decided by the circuit court. And that process is called the writ of certiorari, which is a mouthful there, but that's what it's called. And then uh, the defendant has a habeas motion, which is a defendant can seek habeas relief if all those other, uh, what we spoke about, were exhausted. A defendant can seek habeas relief after his direct appeal is finalized. So when that's complete, 
and that's been exhausted. This is typically called a 2255 petition. It must be filed within one year from the date that the conviction becomes final on direct appeal. So unfortunately, if you lose direct appeal and the conviction becomes final, you have one year to file a 2255 petition. And a habeas petition is based on constitutional error and facts outside of the record. Uh, I know today's topics may have been a little a little more, I don't want to say boring because I find it interesting, but I just wanted to be a little more informative, uh, I guess, because uh, I believe, you know, it's very important. And I believe bringing these things, I know some of the statistics and stuff get a little mundane, but it's it's just important to understand those things, to really grasp when there's agendas involved and when you're evaluating somebody's character and you're evaluating somebody's testimony. Those are all things that are very important. And as a defendant, as a uh, the defendant's family, you, you want to have a, a general knowledge of these things. And as a potential jury, you want to have a knowledge of these things. Just all this stuff to try to educate any listener out there. And I'm hoping, you know, hope, hopefully we could grow with this. And if there's any topics of interest any of the listeners want to kind of hit on, uh, please just feel free to leave a com- Well, better than a comment, actually, just drop an email. You could drop it to uh, my main uh, corporate email and one of uh, my staff members will field it. Just put podcast in the subject and it's info at justicetechpros.com and any anything you'd want to hear about, you know, I'll try to incorporate some way, somehow. I have a few ideas for a, a lot of the upcoming episodes that I think are going to be helpful and um, I think... Little by little, as it builds and has as things kind of manifest organically, I think a lot of good can be done in this format. I said initially I wasn't really a podcast guy. I never thought I'd be doing a podcast, but sometimes events in life force you to change your opinion on certain things, and you want to try to help, and you want to try to do what you can to help others who could be in a situation. And uh, running my organization and seeing families firsthand experience things and also going through things firsthand it is overwhelming to say the least and if you feel something you could do could help that and while helping yourself and helping your own personal situation you could help others there's really not much better than that so i appreciate you tuning in until next time